Um, before we get into tonight's outline, I'd like to just say a little something about our burden for this entire training and especially for this evening line of fellowship. You all know that the general theme for this entire training is God's age turners. And that's actually what we will get into in detail in these evening sessions. And I just like to say here at the beginning that, and I, I believe that I speak for the other serving ones when I say this, we have an earnest prayer for all of you and an earnest hope for you that this training would be a singular event in your whole life. You might think that's a little too much or a little too great of a thing to happen in a week. Let me tell you, it's not. And we believe that this feeling comes from a burden in the Lord himself. I don't know every one of you individually, and I actually don't need to know you individually to have such a burden and such a prayer for you. Because the Lord knows every one of you individually. And as we have been praying over these weeks for this training, I've just been so burdened because I recall it was that time in my own life as a freshman in college that I contacted the Lord for the first time and I was called by the Lord. So I really have a burden and an expectation and a hope that every one of you will be called by Him this week. Maybe this night. That's our prayer. That's our burden. You know, in the life of every Christian, there should be a few experiences that are landmarks. Landmark experiences. Of course, those don't happen every day. They don't happen every year. But let me read you the definition of landmark from the dictionary. It's an event or a change marking an important stage or turning point. That's our prayer for this week. May this be a change marking a turning point in your life, in your Christian life, in your church life, and in your life of serving the Lord. And the best picture of this in the Bible actually is with Abraham. You know, this morning the brothers were sharing about the pouring out of the economical spirit. It's called the blessing of Abraham is going to come to us. And Abraham is our father in faith. We're walking in his footsteps. And as you read the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, you'll notice something. There were three times in his life that were very, very particular. I'm not going to expound on those. I'm just going to tell you that 
these three landmarks in the life of Abraham were all marked by the same thing. You know what it was? An altar. Every time Abraham reached such a turning point in his life, what he did was build an altar. What does that signify? Well, an altar means that we do not live for ourselves. We do not keep anything for ourselves that we realize that our entire existence on the earth is for God. That's the significance of an altar. Or to say it more simply, in the New Testament, in our Christian experience, an altar signifies a consecration. A consecration. And in Abraham's life, there were three big experiences along this line. And as you read church history, you see this same principle applies in church history. There are landmarks. What was the first one? Well, in, in the New Testament, the first landmark, of course, is Pentecost. That was a landmark. It was an age turning event on the earth. There was the Reformation. There was the Welsh Revival. There was the raising up of the brethren. All of these were landmarks in church history. And I would like to tell you also, in the history of the Lord's recovery, there are landmarks. There have been landmarks. The Lord's recovery in the modern era has been on the earth for nearly a hundred years. And, you know, I can't talk about what all of those landmarks were. There were some revivals. There were some special moves of the Lord to different places. You know, not that long ago, from my perspective, maybe it's a long time ago from your perspective, not that long ago, the Lord's recovery had not yet spread to Russia and to the Russian-speaking world. But today, over 200 churches in Russia. That was a landmark. That was a landmark. Not that long ago, there were not that many, or there were no churches in India. But today, I forget the number, over a hundred. Well, let me ask you, is the work of the Lord's recovery finished? Who's going to finish it? Somebody went to Russia. Somebody went to India. Those were landmarks. Those were landmarks. Now let me tell you, at the end of this age will be the greatest dispensational move in human history, in the history of God's move in man, in church history, in the universe. Hallelujah! Yes, hallelujah! And you and I have the opportunity to be in that. Oh, I tell you, I don't, I don't envy Martin Luther. The Reformation was great, but there's something much, much greater. And we are very close to it. I tell you, we are close to it. As we get into tonight's message, we'll see this. But let me just tell you that this greatest age-turning event 
in human history will be what? It will be the preparation of the bride, which will bring the Lord Jesus back. It will be the defeat of Antichrist. It will be the defeat of Satan. And it will be the bringing in of the kingdom of the Lord for eternity. Would you like to be a part of that? Oh, I tell you, if that, if that does not interest you, you're in the wrong place. We have to aim towards this goal. What is, you, what is your life for? What are you aiming at? Are you aiming to be a successful person in the world? Do you like to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 corporation? Let me tell you, that is a very, very low aspiration. I hope you would not aim that low. Would you like to be the president of the United States or whatever country you have come from to come here tonight? I'll tell you again, much too low of an aspiration. If you offer me either one of those things, I don't want it. I'm aiming much higher than that. How about you? Amen? Okay, so, that's what we want to talk about tonight. In our Christian life, there ought to be some of these kind of landmark experiences. We're not trying to manufacture one here, but we're praying for one. We're praying that this week would be a week that will change your life. I really mean it. I had one of those when I was a college student. It changed my life, and my life has never been the same. That was 41 years ago. Once that happens to you, you are never the same. And on your part, if the Lord comes to you, if He speaks to you this week, you need to do something. You need to build an altar. That means... You need to have a new and deeper and stronger consecration than you have ever had in your entire life. And in this message, we're going to see that there is a very particular and even extraordinary kind of consecration that the Lord needs to gain from you and me if we are going to be used by him as his dispensational instrument. Okay, now we can look at this outline and cover the points that are there. Some of them we'll cover quickly. I have a particular burden on a couple of them. Let's read the title together with strong spirit. God. We're talking about God's need. And this may be a new thought to you. Perhaps it's not. But if you really think about it, it's extraordinary. When God needs to turn the age, who does he go to for that? If I were God, it's a good thing I'm not. If I were God, I would seek out some very uh, wise, experienced, mature, trained, skillful, gifted, 
people. It's not how God works. It's not how he worked in the, in the Bible. It's not how he worked in church history. It's not how he worked in the Lord's recovery. It's not how he worked in my own lifetime. It's not how he works today. <clears throat> so, Roman numeral one says, in every age-turning work, God purposely uses young people. Very strange. If I could advise him, I would tell him, young people, by definition, are not that experienced. You might not be able to rely on them totally. Are you sure that's who you want for the most important thing you need? God would answer yes with no hesitation. Hallelujah! And we'll see that as we go through this week. But when the Lord called Saul of Tarsus, it tells us in Acts 7, he was a young man. A young man. And when Samuel was about to anoint a king, he went and took a look at all of the sons of Jesse. And the Lord didn't want any of them. He said, bring me the youngest one. The youngest. That's who I want. The youngest. When the Lord called Daniel and his companions in the land of Shinar, which is Babylon, Daniel chapter 1 uses the word children to describe them. Children. How old were they? I don't know. But you don't call adults children, do you? Children. And when the Lord raised up Samuel to serve as a prophet, a priest, and eventually bring in the kingship, he was a little boy, a little child. He was such a little child, every year his mother had to make him a new ephod because he outgrew the old one. Think about it. The Lord always came to young people. This is a principle that he will use young people. The two most obvious examples are Samuel and Daniel. Now listen, God wants to end this age and bring in the kingdom. And for this, he needs a dispensational instrument. Who will that be? It will be young people. Whether it will be you or not, only you can answer. But it will be young people. And a principle of God's work is that he works age to age. Don't ask me how long an age is. It depends. I'm not talking about the dictionary definition of an age here. I'm saying that in God's mood, there are ages, there are time periods. And God works from age to age. And in every age, he has something that he wants to accomplish, that he needs to accomplish towards his ultimate goal... And he will raise up a, a dispensational instrument in that age. 
But what the Bible tells us and what church history tells us is that because we are weak and frail vessels, even though the Lord may be able to raise up a dispensational instrument in time, there's always some failure, there's always some degradation, there's always some weakness. So the Lord needs to turn that age and bring in another age. And whenever he is at such a point, he needs to find a new dispensational instrument. And every time he goes to the young people, every time. Well, I, I like you to realize, I like you to think about where we are in church history. It's exciting, I'm telling you, it's exciting. If you really see it, you, you, you will be excited. You know, the Bible uses this illustration of, of a clock. It says that when the Lord comes, it'll be midnight. So let's use that. If the, end of, if the end of the church age and the ushering in of the kingdom is at midnight, what, what time do you suppose it is right now? Is it 6 p.m.? I don't think so. 9? 9 p.m.? I don't think so. I, I'm not one of these people who's going to predict the hour of the Lord's coming. That's foolish. But let me tell you, it's, it's late. It's late at night. I, I, I can tell you with some assurance, it's past 11 p.m. And how close it is to midnight, I don't know. Only the Lord knows. But we are living in an age that is so particular. It's so particular. Well, <clears throat> let's go on. A says, nearly every work that the young people were called by God to do was a work that turned the age. Samuel turned the age of the priesthood to the age of the kingship, whereas Daniel turned the age of captivity to the age of return. Every time God wants to make a dispensational move, an age-turning move, he must obtain his dispensational instrument. We must be those who have dispensational value to God in the last days to turn the age. What an aspiration. This is something we should pray for. Lord, I want to have dispensational value to you at the end of this age. You know, the overcomers are plural, right? There's more than one overcomer. There are overcomers. Am I right? But the instrument is singular. That means all of the overcomers together are God's dispensational instruments. Not instruments. Many overcomers, one instrument. That's the way God will end this age. Now, I'd like you to read to me number one under B. And if this does not get your adrenaline going, I don't know what will. Let's read number one. Read it strongly. The goal. The goal is to find the 
That's the goal. Not just of this age. That's the goal of God's eternal economy. Unless you live at the right time, you, you can't have a share in that goal. You could contribute to it in the long run, but you couldn't see it come to fruition. Okay, I want to read you a little bit here from Daniel chapter 2. That's where this comes from. You know, this is based on the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and which Daniel interpreted. And in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a great human image. And all of the Bible expositors agree, all of the good ones agree, that the image which Nebuchadnezzar saw represents the world empires, the kingdoms of the world from the time of the Persian Empire to the time of the Antichrist. And that image, in other words, represents all of human government. All of human government. Well, it starts with the head. It goes down to the toes. I don't want to read it all. I'll just... I'll read... I'll read from the feet. And in that... I'm starting at verse 41. And in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom will be a confused mass. But there will be some of the firmness of iron in it. For you saw the iron mixed with the earthly clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be fragile. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will raise up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And its reign will not be left to another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. And it will stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that out of the mountain a stone was cut without hands. And that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will happen afterward. Well, what Daniel prophesied here is that a stone cut out without hands would smite this image representing all of human government. Then that image will be destroyed. Then that stone will become a mountain that fills the earth. That mountain signifies the kingdom, which will be an eternal kingdom. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the end, not only of this age, but the end of all of the ages. The end of all human government and the bringing in of the kingdom. That will be the greatest dispensational move in history. Oh, I want to be a part of that. How about you? Do you have something better to give your life to? I don't think there's anything higher than this. Okay, number two, simply speaking, recovery is to overcome. To be in the Lord's recovery is to be in the Lord's 
overcoming. Being prepared to be his overcoming bride for his return. Okay, so this is the principle. We have just covered the principle, which is the Lord will use some young people in this age. Who will they be? I would say it's altogether up to you. But let's read Roman numeral 2 and we'll find out which kind of young people he can use. Let's read Roman numeral 2 together. Only the Nazarite. this is based on Numbers chapter 6, there is a provision in the priesthood. You know, God ordained that all of his people would be priests, that every single one would be a priest living in a kingdom of priests. Even in the Old Testament, that was God's desire, that was God's ordination. Even the more in the New Testament, but of course... God's people did not fulfill faithfully his desire, so he chose one tribe, and even out of that tribe of Levi, he selected a household of Aaron to serve as the priests. But, to bring us back to God's original intention, number six talks about another provision. A person could offer himself voluntarily to be a priest, to be a Nazarite. You didn't have to be born in the tribe of Levi. You did not have to be in the house of Aaron. The qualification for the Nazarite is voluntary consecration. Voluntary consecration. So Samuel was a Nazarite. We know this from the story and This will be covered in subsequent nights. But his mother consecrated him to be a Nazarite, and he fulfilled that vow. You know, that's a good lesson for the parents as well as the children. The parents can consecrate. They can make a vow, but the children need to fulfill it because they still have that choice. They still have their will. But Samuel was a Nazarite. Daniel was a Nazarite. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. The characteristic that is in common with all of the Nazarites is they made a choice, an act of will, a voluntary consecration. So, let's read on. A says, all those who are used by God to turn the age are today's Nazarites, those who offer themselves willingly to the Lord. Offer themselves willingly. The qualification of the Nazarite, I say again, it's not age. Samuel was a child. It's not skill, it's not gift, it's not knowledge, it's not maturity. The qualification is, are you willing? Are you willing? 
It's entirely up to you. It's a choice that you and you alone can make. God can't make it for you. Your parents cannot make it for you. The serving ones cannot make it for you. We can pray for you. We can hope for you. But it's entirely up to you whether you would be a Nazarite or not. B says, oh, let me finish. Those who offer themselves willingly to the Lord. The Nazarite separation lasted for seven days, signifying a full course, even a lifetime. Okay, now I want to say something. Don't get scared. And don't look at yourself. When we say that you need an extraordinary consecration, and when we say we are hoping that your life would change, We're not talking about something for a week, or a month, or a year. We're talking about a lifetime. I testify to you. That happened to me. I made a choice when I was 18 years old. I had no idea I was choosing something for my lifetime. But I did it. And I never looked back. And I'm not going back now. How about you? It's a lifetime. Don't say, oh, I can't commit to something for a lifetime. Don't look at yourself. The qualification is what? To be willing. Are you willing? That's good enough. Good enough. Now, the consecration that the Nazarites make has four big items, and I'll emphasize only a couple of them, but they're all four important. There's a fourfold consecration, or you could say a fourfold overcome. There are four things that a Nazarite must overcome. And I have to tell you, these four things are particularly relevant to the young people. I faced all four of these when I was quite young. And so have you, and so will you. What's the first one? A Nazarite must overcome worldly enjoyment and pleasure, signified by his abstaining from wine and anything related to its source. The Nazarite made a vow. Again, I say a vow is simply an act of your will. It's a choice. But it's a little more than a choice, isn't it? A vow means I'm making not only a choice, I'm making a permanent decision. So the the Nazarite, one of his vows, was not to drink wine or anything related to its source. Um, We apply this spiritually. It means he must overcome worldly enjoyment and pleasure. Oh my goodness. We live in an age, we live in an age, at least in the U.S., but in many countries on the earth, an age of prosperity, an age of ease, an age 
of worldly enjoyment and pleasure, which has not been seen for a long time in human history. That's the age that we live in. Uh, You'll hear some more about that in the coming nights. Uh, What are the young people of this generation caught up with? A lot of them swept away by worldly enjoyment and pleasure. It seems like that's the entire purpose for their existence. A Nazarite can't be like that. Not a Nazarite. A Nazarite makes a choice. No, I'm not going that way. I'm not going that way. Well, don't ask me to tell you what are all the worldly enjoyments and pleasures. If you ask me, I would say, you know much better than I do. I would say you are actually an expert on this subject. You know exactly what the worldly pleasures and enjoyments are, which would keep you from being a Nazarite. So I don't think I need to tell you what they are. Number two, a Nazarite must overcome rebellion, signified by his not shaving his head. We all know the story of Samson. Samson was also a Nazarite. That's why his hair grew long. Not shaving the head signifies not rejecting, but being absolutely subject to the headship of the Lord. You know, when man fell to the lowest point, the expression of the fall of man at Babel was to reject God's rule to utterly and as as a corporate man to throw off God's rule. That's what man did at Babel. And we're not under God anymore. We make the decisions, we make the rules. That started at Babel. And ever since the time of Babel, man has lived in rebellion against God including a part of that rebellion against God's authority, is all the human governments. That's why that prophecy in Daniel related to the crushing of the human governments. The human governments facilitate the rebellion against God's authority. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you to rebel against human government. I'm telling you don't rebel against anything. And Nazarite must overcome rebellion. You know, very often the philosophy of this age is expressed in little sayings. Sometimes it's expressed in bumper stickers. There's a bumper sticker that I still see, and you see it. A lot, you still see it. Just two words. Question authority. Question authority. That's the philosophy of this age. God says, submit to authority. Not question authority. Submit to authority. And he also says, all authority that is in place, including the human government, it's all part of God's universal headship. We do not question authority. We submit to authority. That is 
a secret of the Nazarite's power and of his consecration. What was, you know, you'd all know the story of Samson. Where did his power come from? His hair. But forget about hair. We're not talking about hair. We're talking about he overcame rebellion. That's the secret to his power. That will be the secret to your power. But the world is the exact opposite of that. The world lives in rebellion against God. They make laws that are 100% contrary to God's own law. This is the world. You know, in Luke 19, there's a parable I like very much. It says there was a, uh, <clears throat> a certain man of noble birth who went to a distant country in order to receive a kingdom. But the citizens of that kingdom that he was supposed to receive hated him. And they sent an envoy after him to tell him, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's the world. That's the world. This world and all of the people who are in it were created by God and for God. Who should be the king? God should be the king. Christ should be the king. Who is the king? The devil is the king. The devil is the ruler of this world. And man joins him happily in his rebellion against God. A Nazarite is different. A Nazarite doesn't do that. Oh, I, I, I can't say too much here. We need to reject this philosophy of the age. We need to become people who submit not only to God's authority, but to all proper authority. Now, number three, a Nazarite must overcome death, signified by his not being allowed to be defiled by the death of the relative closest to him or by the sudden death of one beside him, part of the uh, vow that the Nazarite takes is not to contact death. You know, in the picture, if, if you were to come in contact with a, a corpse, a dead body, that will defile you. You will become unclean. You will not be useful for a period of time due to that defilement and that uncleanness. So part of the Nazarite vow was not to touch death, not to be defiled by death, even someone very close to you. Well, we apply this again. We apply this spiritually. We're not talking about physical death. We're talking about spiritual death. Would you like to be a Nazarite? Yes. You need to make a choice to not contact death in any form. Death can come in many forms. And again I say, I don't need to tell you what kills your spirit. You already know. You know what kills you. But I would like to apply this in one way. And that is, 
improper speaking, negative kinds of speaking, spread death. They spread death like germs. And when you listen to that, when you entertain it, when you take it into you, you, you not only contact death, you become dead. Has that ever happened to you? Of course it has. Of course it has. Probably many times. I had that experience as a very young believer in the church life. The brother who preached the gospel to me, the very first person who preached the gospel to me in my whole life, is also the brother who shepherded me into the church life in the Lord's recovery. I love this brother very, very much. And one day, not, not only he, but many others were affected by some negative speaking. And they took it into them, and they entertained it. And the next thing I knew, many of them were gone, including this brother, who I considered to be my spiritual father. Oh, that became a very, very great test to me. Am I going to touch that death because I love this brother? The Nazarite does not defile himself even by the death of a closest relative. If this kind of circumstance has not happened yet in your life, I just need to tell you in faithfulness, it will happen. It will happen. It may happen multiple times. That's why you need to settle this matter beforehand. You can't decide then. You need to decide now. If you wait until the spiritual death is right in front of you, it's going to be too late. You, you will be defiled. Now, I have a particular burden on the last one. A Nazarite must overcome natural affection. Natural affection. Signified by his not making himself unclean by his father, mother, brother, or sister, when they die. So there's two things here. There's the matter of spiritual death. Absolutely. Listen. Do not let your curiosity bring you into spiritual death. I know a brother who completely killed himself spiritually because he just had a curiosity about negative things that he could read on the internet. He poisoned himself. He committed spiritual suicide by poisoning himself. I've seen that happen. Don't do that. Don't get curious. Don't take in negative speaking or writing out of some kind of curiosity. Uh, You will poison yourself. But the other part of this vow is the matter of natural affection. And this is a big matter when we... uh, Especially when you're young, it, 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 it can affect you when you're old, but when you're young, it's a very significant matter. Um, again, I say I remember coming into the church life as a young person. I had eight siblings. When I got saved, I was the only one of the nine who was a believer in Christ. And then I came into the church life, 
And, uh, well, make a long story short, my family was not very happy about either one of those decisions. And I had a choice to make. I had to decide. I had to choose. Well, you know, the way all of us are, we don't want to choose. We want to have everything. We want to have the church life and our natural affection. We want to have the church life and the world. We want to have whatever we want. But the Christian life is not that way. Not if you're going to be a Nazarite. The Nazarite makes a choice. And the choice is, I don't compromise with the world. I also don't compromise with natural affection. The best example of that is the Lord himself. He... You know, the Lord had at least six siblings, four brothers, at least two sisters. We're not sure of the exact number of sisters. And a mother and a father who was not his father. And the Gospels tell us plainly in one place that even his brothers who lived in the same house with him did not believe in him. So, how does he live a life as a Nazarite before God the Father? How does he honor his mother who does not know who he is, his father who is not his father and really does not know who he is, and his brothers who do not even believe in him? Well, read the Gospels. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's a perfect balance. He loved them. He honored them, and he never compromised. Not even once. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Well, let me read you a couple verses that are not on the outline. Uh, Well, you have Matthew 12 there. That's the story where the Lord was in the house, and they came and told him, "Your, your, your mother and your sisters, your brothers, are waiting for you outside the house. They're very concerned about you because you haven't had anything to eat. And you know how the Lord answered them. He said, he pointed to the ones who were with him in the house. And he said, behold, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, that those who do the will of God, those are my mothers. Those are my brothers. Those are my sisters. Well, was he dishonoring his natural relatives? No, he was honoring God. He was honoring God. But he considered the brothers and sisters in typology now because it's before his death and resurrection. He considered them all to be his real family. That's, that was his thought. Now, let me give you three verses. Matthew 10.37 says, He who loves father or mother above me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter above me is not worthy of me. That verse, probably we all would say, okay, I got this. That's no problem. Uh, I love my family, but I don't love them above the Lord. Well, let's see. Uh, here's another verse for you, Luke 14:26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate 
his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and moreover, even his own soul life, he cannot be my disciple. Now we're in trouble. Of course, you have to apply this properly. He's not telling us to hate hate any of them as persons. He doesn't mean you hate your father and mother as persons. No, it's not like that. He means, if I have to make a choice, ever, if I have to make a choice between God and between God's move and between the gospel and my relatives, I've already made the choice. And I hate anything that will keep me from fulfilling my Nazarite vow. I don't hate the people, but I hate anything that will hold me back from fulfilling my Nazarite vow. So, you have another verse, Matthew 8, 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. The Lord had called him to follow him. He said, yes, I'll follow you. Let me just go bury my father first. It sounds like a very reasonable request. All of us would say, oh, of course, of course, go bury your father and catch up with me later. Is that what the Lord said? Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Again, I say, don't get in your mind and don't apply this in a natural way. He's not saying don't go to the father, your father's funeral. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about make a choice. Will you allow natural affection to keep you from pursuing Christ? Will you allow it to keep you from participating in the church life? Some, just due to natural affection, they don't go to the full-time training or other things like the college training. Just due to natural affection. Well, I'm not judging anyone, but I think that the Bible's pretty clear here. We need to be Nazarites. And it's up to you whether you would be one or not. Okay, I want us all to read Roman numeral 3 together. Roman numeral 3. Whether... About this. Let me ask you a question. Are there any absolute people in this generation? You don't sound very sure to me. Whether or not God will find a way in this generation depends on whether or not there are absolute people in this generation. 
Are there any absolute people in this generation? Yeah, don't look at yourself. It's very much related to your willingness. It's very much related to your willingness. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, you have a portion that touches me very, very much. Uh, I'd like to just read you one verse, but I'll give you the background first. In Isaiah chapter 6, the first thing that happens is Isaiah sees a vision of Jehovah of hosts on the throne in glory. And as soon as he sees Jehovah, he says, Woe is me. Woe is me. I am, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and yet I have seen Jehovah of hosts. Well, then the Lord does something to, to he takes the, the coals from the altar and touches them to the lips and the tongue of Isaiah to cleanse him from his iniquity. Then he becomes useful to the Lord. Then right after that, the end of that section is verse 8. That's what I would like to read to you, Isaiah 6, 8. Then... <clears throat> Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. When Isaiah looked at himself, he saw an unclean man. The Lord didn't tell him, No, you're not unclean. No, he was unclean. But the Lord has a way to deal with that. We apply the altar, signifying the cross. We apply the blood. We can be cleansed from our uncleanness. Then, what do you see in this verse with Isaiah? What do you see? He offered himself. He was willing. Even the Lord, it seems like the Lord didn't know. In fact, it seems like the Lord was asking the question that I just asked you. Whom shall I send right now in this generation? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? What do you say? Here I am. Send me. Let's all say that. We need to tell the Lord that. Yes, yes, you are young. Yes, you need training. Yes, you need maturity. Yes, you need to know the truth. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about right now is are you willing? Then you need to tell Him, Lord, in this generation, Send me! He'll do that. That's what he's looking for. That's what he needs. That's, that's the person he can use. 
Well, that's what's going to determine. I told you already. The Lord will use young people in this generation. That's, that's who He will use. The only question is, will you be one of them? Amen. Will you? Amen. Will you be one of them? Amen. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't miss it. What are you going to miss it for? The world? No. Money? A career? A nice life? A comfortable life? You're going to miss this for that? I hope not. That's a bad, bad trade. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay, now, let's go on. A says we should rise up to follow the Lord. Am I in the right place? Yes. We should rise up to follow the Lord in His present move. And have ourselves adjusted to his regulations to be useful to him. Rise up. Rise up to follow the Lord in his present move. Oh, I like this verse in Daniel 11. Here you have Daniel 11:32. Daniel 11, thir- Daniel chapter 11 is talking about something that occurred in the end of the Old Testament age, in about something like 200 B.C. in Israel. And there was a king of Syria who was, who was occupying Israel at the time, a person called Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. And this person, all good Bible expositors agree, that person is the most complete type of the Antichrist in the, in the Bible. What Antiochus did is he, you know, the, the rulers mint their own coins. You know what he put on his? Right underneath his picture, God manifest. That's what he called himself. I am God manifest. And then he did all of the things that are prophesied that the Antichrist will do. He desecrated the temple. He set up an image of himself in the temple and said, worship me as God. That's exactly what the Antichrist will do. And then, according to history, in order to infuriate the Jews, he sacrificed a pig on the altar. That's recorded by the historian Josephus. It's also recorded in the books of the Maccabees. And according to the history, what happened? is there was a revolt. Hallelujah! There was a revolt led by a group called the Maccabees, which were a family. They said, no! No! You are not God! We will not worship you as God! And by all... You should read it. By all... Odds, they should never have been able to defeat this person 
and his armies. But they did. They overthrew this evil person. They recovered the temple. That's what the Jews still uh, commemorate today by Hanukkah. That's the origin of Hanukkah, was the, the purification of the temple by the Maccabees. Well, that's not the point here. The point is, these people, the Maccabees, here's what it says in Daniel 11.32, But the people who know their God will show strength and take action. That's what's going to happen at the end of this age. When the Antichrist rises up, when people start to worship the beast and his image, there's going to be some overcomers who say, No! Even if everybody else does that, I'm not going to do that. And let me tell you, it's going to be a small number. It's going to be a small number. Even among the believers, it's going to be a small number. So B says it's a small number who will turn the world and change the age. If we would be in the upper room, we need to pray in a specific way and say, Lord, I am willing. I'm willing to be in the upper room for the recovery of your testimony. I'm willing. We're not here for a movement, but for the Lord's recovery. And the recovery can be carried out only by the specific and extraordinary consecration in the upper room. Okay, this is talking about Acts chapter 1. You know, initially the Lord began with 12 Galileans. Not anything very impressive. Later, there were 70. And... By the time we reach Acts 1, there's 120 people praying in an upper room. That's who the Lord had on the whole earth. And those 120 people turned the world upside down. They absolutely revolutionized the age that they lived in. 120 people. It'll be just like that at the end of this age. The number of living overcomers, according to the book of Revelation, is 144,000. That's a very, very small number compared to the population of the earth, compared to even the number of believers on the earth. What is 144,000? Let me tell you what 144,000 is. It's enough. It's enough to defeat Antichrist. It's enough to cast Satan into the lake of fire. It's enough to bring the Lord back. And it's enough to turn the age to the age of the kingdom. Oh, I want to be in that number. How about you? Well, that requires a specific and extraordinary consecration. They prayed for ten days. And... Specific means it's not general. I don't just say, Lord, I consecrate myself to you. Well, that's good, and it's a lot better than nothing, but what does that mean? Lord, I consecrate myself to you. What does that mean? What does it mean to you? Well, 
let's be more specific. What did it mean to them? I have eight things here that it meant to them. First of all, they had to give up religion. They gave up the traditional religion of their forefathers. Secondly, they had to give up their country. They weren't from Jerusalem, they were from Galilee. Third, they had to give up a lot of relationships with friends, with neighbors. Fourth, they had to give up, in a sense, they had to give up their relatives. They had to leave their relatives. Fifth, they had to leave their homes. Sixth, they had to leave their possessions. Seven, they had to leave their livelihood. That means their way of making a living. Or money. Or mammon. And eight, they had to risk their lives. That was the consecration of the 120 in the upper room. You might say, well, that price, that's too high. Whether that price is high or not, it all depends on what value you place on being a part of God's dispensational instrument in this age. I would say it's cheap. If you really see what it's for, you'll do it. You'll do it. Including risking their lives. You know, the word in Greek for witnesses, when the Lord said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. The Greek word for witnesses is martyrs. If I say to you, you will be my witnesses, you'll say, Amen! If I say, you will be my martyrs, they'll be silent in here. Every overcomer has the spirit of a martyr. Everyone used by the Lord has the spirit of a martyr. I have to go quickly, but I, I wrote down a couple verses I want to read to you. Philippians 2.30. The church in Philippi sent a brother named Epaphroditus to take care of Paul in prison. Here's what Paul said about him. Because for the work of Christ, he drew near unto death, risking his life. The footnote said, recklessly exposing his life like a gambler throwing down a stake. Acts 20:24, 20, Paul said, I consider my life of no account as if precious to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to solemnly testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 15.6, talking about Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord does not want a partial consecration you say, oh Lord, I consecrate to you the next two years of my life. Well, think about it. If you live to be 80 years old, two years is two and a half percent of your life. 
Oh Lord, I, I love you so much, I'm going to give you 2.5% of my life. He wants 100%. That's the specific and extraordinary consecration that we're talking about. It's 100%. It's not 90%. Okay, we need to finish up here. Because I, I can't wait to hear your sharing. Oh, let's read C together. In these last days. Okay, just a couple minutes here. This is from Judges chapter 5. And what happened in Judges chapter 5 is the defeat of Sisera through Barak and Jael. And right after Sisera was defeated, Deborah the prophetess, who was also the judge at that time, sang a song. And in her song, she... You have to read it. But there's a couple of elements there that I like a lot. It says part of her her speaking there is that the leaders took the lead and the people offered themselves willingly. That was part of her phrase. And she said there were mainly two tribes that followed Deborah and Barak. That was Issachar and Zebulun. And speaking of Zebulun, she said, they despised their own lives even unto death. These are the overcomers. And then talking about Reuben, she said, in the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of hearts and great resolutions of heart. And It's not explained there. I don't know exactly what it means, but I think, and here's my understanding, some of the people followed Deborah and Barak, and some did not. You read that chapter. Entire tribes did not follow. And, for example, the tribe of Dan. And Deborah asked, why? Why, Dan? Why did you stay at home? But when she comes to Reuben, she says, there were great searchings of heart and great resolutions of heart. I think we all know what searchings are. But I looked up this Hebrew word for resolutions, and it's really an interesting word. It it means a decree or a statute, a clear communication of what someone should do. So, first there's a searching of the heart. Then, there's a decree. There is a decision. There is a resolution of what you should do. You know, Brother Lee testified one time. He had this kind of, this kind of prayer. I I wouldn't even call it a prayer. He had this kind of searching. He had this kind of resolution before the Lord. 
He said, if I'm going to be a man, I must be a Christian. And if I'm going to be a Christian, I must take the way of the Lord's recovery. What do you call that? I call that a great searching of hearts and a great resolution in hearts. We need that. We all need that in order to be the Lord's age turners in this age. Okay, now let's read Roman numeral 4 together. We should tell the Lord. Okay, we'll save the rest of the time for your sharing. The brothers will tell us how we will proceed.